In, in the days ahead, many of us are going to travel. Some of us will leave our houses and apartments and condos and head home to see family and friends. Some of us will just travel to the dining room. That's my favorite kind of travel. Um, Many of us will have the, the privilege of enjoying great food and fellowship as we gather around the table. We'll pile on the potatoes and the pounds. Uh, but it's all for a good cause. At least that's what I'll tell myself. Um, when we think about Thanksgiving and, and the Thanksgiving meal, uh, we, we think of, of, a, of a warm setting with, with laughter and love. And even if we're not headed home, we know that we're in someone's home. And when we envision that most ideal scene, kind of a thanksgiving, there's a sense of kind of existential rest and refreshment and rightness to the scene which we hope to enjoy in the days ahead. And I think that the Lord has planted these experiences in our lives as indicators of His grace and inducements to long for something more. As, as good as the time with family and friends will be, as, as good as the food will be, as, as strong as our sense of being at home will be, we still intuitively know that we were made for something more. And we'll think about this and more as we study Amos chapter 9 this morning. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 9. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the pews, uh, you should be able to find the passage beginning on page nine, uh, excuse me, 770. It's chapter 9, Amos chapter 9, but it's on page 770 of the Bibles provided. And while you're turning there, uh, allow me to remind us of the overall thrust of Amos' message. The book of Amos is about a people headed somewhere. But they're not headed home. God called Amos, a humble shepherd from the south, to go and preach to the haughty people of the north in Israel. God called Amos to proclaim to Israel the ominous message that they were going to be removed from their homes and thrust out of their land. This message has been proclaimed again and again and again in the book of Amos. In fact, it is restated one final time in the, chapter, in the final chapter of the book. In Amos 9, the Lord reveals one more time that He's going to uproot His people from the land of Canaan to take them out of their homes. But He also promises that after this uprooting, that He will replant the people in their land. He will bring them back home. And that He will do so in such a way, He will plant them back in their land in such a way in which they will never be uprooted again. This revelation and promise of restoration are signposts along the storyline of the Bible. Ultimately, they point to Jesus Christ, His work, and our hope of eternal life in God's heavenly garden. We're going to study Amos chapter 9 in two sections under two headings. First, Revelation, where you see God reveal a judgment to come. And Restoration, where we see God's people restored to their final home. So if you're taking notes this morning, those two points will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Revelation, 
and restoration. And let's begin by considering our first point, Revelation. And as we do, read Amos chapter 9, verses 1 to 10 with me. Amos chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and He said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people, and those who are left of them I will kill with a sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vaults upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is His name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up from Israel the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtar and the Syrians from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the, all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, Disaster shall not overtake us or meet us. Well, with verse 1, and the reference to what Amos saw, we are reminded that we're in the portion of the book of Amos where the Lord's message is mainly communicated through visions. Amos has seen a number of visions so far, a vision of locusts, a, a drought, a, a plumb line, a basket of summer fruit. Each of those visions in its own unique way pointed to the reality that the wicked within Israel were deserving of God's judgment. And the Lord reveals the same thing in this vision too. This vision is a, a revelation of the fact that the wicked will not escape God's judgment. Amos sees the Lord standing beside the altar. The location of Amos's vision is striking, especially given what follows. The altar is where the Lord received the peace offerings of the people of Israel. But what has been clear in the book of Amos so far, and what is clear in these verses, is that Israel does not have peace with God. As I said, Amos sees the Lord standing beside the altar. But the Lord doesn't just stand there. He says something too. The Lord commands that Israel and her capitals be struck with judgment. It's as if God is slamming His fist down on Israel, thereby crushing her precious institutions. The very foundations of the nation are to shake and break apart and thereby allow all that, all that, uh, allowing all that supports and holds them up to fall to fall upon the heads of the people of Israel. And the major thrust of this command is to see to it that none of them 
shall escape God's judgment. Not one, the Lord says. And the, the various expressions in verses 2 through 4 underscore this point. They can dig into Sheol, they can climb Mount Carmel, they can hide at the bottom of the sea, and they can go into captivity, but wherever they go, they cannot escape the wrath of God. And don't let these various poetic images trip you up. No, the sea serpent in verse 3 is not biblical proof that the Loch Ness Monster exists. No, the, uh, the, the point is that God will find them, take them, and bring them down. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. God can find them anywhere because He is present everywhere. Remember what David said in Psalm 139? He said to the Lord, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Those who have peace with God, to those who have peace with God, then God's presence is actually a comfort. That's what Psalm 139 would actually reveal. But to those who are enemies of God, then God's presence is a frightful reality. And what is amazing about the book of Amos is that it seems as though God's people have become God's enemies. In verse 4, God promises to fix His eyes upon them for evil and not for good. And don't be troubled by this phrase either. It's a, it's a rather infelicitous translation of the original language, as it may give some readers the, the false impression that God's responsible for evil. Uh, we, we're not lazy readers of scriptures, though, are we? So we know from the uh, sweep of scriptures that God is perfectly holy and just and good. He is not the author of sin, wickedness, and evil, and He never commits any sin, wickedness, or evil. What Amos is communicating here is that God has promised to bring calamity upon His people. That's obviously clear from the larger context. God will not visit Israel with covenant blessings, but with covenant curses, just as He promised to do in Deuteronomy 28, should the people of Israel refuse to hear and heed His word. God not only promises to judge, but He also has the power to judge. That's what verses 5 and 6 reveal. Here we meet something like a musical interlude where Amos lingers over God's mighty power. He is the Lord God of hosts. He commands a heavenly army. He can touch the earth and set off an earthquake. That's the image of verse 5. He can play the, the tectonic plates of this earth like a piano and make it move. He made it. He reigns over it. But He also reigns over the heavens too. He possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. He can gather the waters together and pour them out in judgment, just like He did in the flood. Amos is telling the people of Israel this. He's saying, look, this is the God that you're dealing with. He plans to judge you. And He has the power to judge you. But why? Why will God judge Israel? Well, we're told in verse 7 there, Israel has become just like the Cushites to God. Well, why did it matter that Israel bore any resemblance to a nation that was kind of on the far reaches of the globe from their perspective? Well, the point is that Israel wasn't supposed to look anything like any of the other nations on earth. God called the people of Israel to Himself to be holy as He is holy. 
This is why God brought them out of Egypt, to make them a new people and a nation who worshipped and served Him alone. God set them apart to be a reflection of His character on earth. But as soon as they joined in with the practices of the surrounding nations, they became just like them and indistinguishable from them and therefore worthy of judgment, just like them. Now, lest Israel think that they're the only people that God has kind of ever moved. You know, God, he, he, he brought us up out of Egypt. He's not done this with anybody else before. Well, lest Israel think that they're the only people God has ever moved on the face of the earth and planted in a new land, and that this protected them from being uprooted from their land, well, they only needed to consider the Philistines and the Syrians. We're told in verse 7 that God moved them too, and He judged them too. God told the people of Israel in chapter 3 that if He judged the surrounding nations for their disobedience, then He would certainly judge Israel. What this reveals, as one scholar pointed out, is that with Israel's unique relationship with God came a special responsibility of loyalty to Him and accountability for their sins. They were unfaithful to God. Israel was to worship Him and Him alone. And they had turned away from that exclusive love and loyalty to worship the gods of other nations, worship money and themselves. The Lord sees this for what it is, sin. In the eyes of God, they had become the sinful kingdom who was worthy of judgment, just like the nations. Now this is an important point for us as a church to consider too. The New Testament teaches us that God established the church to display the manifold wisdom of God. Our calling as a church is to live holy lives in reflection of our holy God. We're to be different than the world around us, in part so that they can see and know something of God's good, gracious, and gentle character. We pursue this both individually and collectively. Your individual life speaks about the church that you're a member of. If you're a member of this congregation, then you're something of a billboard for our church. Your life is telling friends, family, co-workers, and neighbors that this is what it means to be a Christian, and this is what it means to be a member of Arlington Baptist Church. Now, you may not have realized it, but your personal walk with Christ is not private. And for His glory, God never intended it to be. We want to encourage and spur one another on to Christ-likeness so that God will be glorified in our individual and corporate church witness to Him. And there are several reactions that we might have to this calling. On the one hand, we, we should be sobered by this calling of our Lord, humbled by it. On the other hand, we should be grateful for the privilege of the calling to represent Him, to be His ambassadors. And we should humbly plead with Him to be powerfully at work in our lives, to be faithful witnesses to Him. Because we know who we are. We're sinners in need of His grace, and we need His grace to be evident in our lives each day. Well, as verse 8 makes clear, God personally promises to destroy Israel from the surface of the ground. And yet, in the midst of this judgment, there is hope. In the same sentence, there is both comprehensive destruction 
and partial preservation. I wonder if you noticed that. The Lord says, I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. How can this be? Well, the short answer is that there are some within Israel who are not totally given over to rebellion and hard-heartedness. To put it somewhat provocatively, and to use the language of the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 9, verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In, in other words, there is a believing remnant within Israel, and they will not be utterly destroyed. What we're seeing here is that there is a, a larger group of Israelites who will be judged for their sin and rebellion, and within that larger group, there is a, a smaller group of Israelites within the nation who will not utterly be destroyed. And I think that we can actually see this in the text, too. Read verse 8 again. Behold, the eyes of, God, of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Notice the two groups, the sinful kingdom and the house of Jacob. Those two groups have, have different ends. One will be wiped off the face of the earth and the other will not. And the reason that the sinful kingdom and the house of Jacob have two different ends is because they're not coextensive. And then there's the image of the sieve in verse 9. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. Though the nations are, are mentioned, the point of comparison is not so much between Israel and the nations. God has called Israel out from among the nations for this special judgment. In this instance, He will put them through a sieve. And the purpose of the sieve is to separate good grain from small stones. The Lord is an excellent harvester. And He can perfectly separate the good grain from the pebbles. Or to put it in the language of Jesus, the Lord can separate the sheep and the goats. And again, the point is that not one who is worthy of judgment shall escape. Finally, there's yet another thread of divine discrimination between unbelieving Israel and believing Israel in verse 10. Verse 10. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Here the Lord specifies who will meet His judgment. It's those sinners who proudly say, disaster, disaster is not going to overtake us. Those who say, God's not going to judge us. Simply because you deny God's judgment and deny that you are worthy of it does not mean that God will not judge. Our denial does not divert God's disaster. It's not as though our protestations to God's judgment will actually cause God to say, Oh, oh they say that they're not going to be judged. Well, I, I suppose they're right then. I, I guess that I will not judge them. No. We do not determine who is worthy of judgment and who is not. God does. The point here in verse 10 is to show how unbelieving people react to God's threat of judgment. They're, they're terribly unconcerned with God's ways and rarely, if ever, think of themselves as sinners. All of this implies, of course, that believers respond differently to the threat of judgment. Believers, on the other hand, admit that they are sinners. They admit that they're worthy of judgment. And they repent of their sin. They turn away from them. They confess that they're worthy of disaster and they turn to God for mercy. They know and believe the promise of Proverbs 28, 13. He who confesses and forsakes his sin will obtain mercy. 
What about you? Perhaps you're, you're wondering about how this portion of Amos' prophecy applies to you. What connection does this ancient text make to your contemporary life? Well, do you live life as one who says, like the people of Israel, disaster is not going to overtake me? Or are you concerned about God and His ways? If you, if you had to step back and kind of evaluate your life, what would your evaluation be? Would it be, I'm a pretty good person? God's, God's pleased with my life and the things that I do. Would your evaluation be, you know, I'm not perfect. No, nobody is. But at the end of the day, when you weigh everything out in the end, I've done more good than evil. Everything with God's going to turn out okay in the end. Or would your evaluation of yourself be, my heart is deceitful and wicked. I've sinned against God and offended His divine majesty. I've called into question His lordship over my life. And too often I've lived my own way and rejected Him. What I'm driving at is this. Is what, what do you think of your sin? Do you think that it's not that big of a deal? Or that it is a really big deal to a really great God? Those are two entirely different ways to live. The way up to heaven is actually down through humble recognition and admission of our sin and guilt. And that doesn't mean that the Christian life is living in a constant state of guilt and gloom. Far from it. The Christian life is one of humble joy. Humble because we've come to an honest recognition of our sin and danger and joy. Because God in His kindness has rescued undeserved sinners. He's showered His undeserved mercy and grace upon us. There's a difference between the haughty, the proud, and the humble. And that difference is the difference between eternal disaster and eternal delight. This divine discrimination that we see here, it's revealed between the haughty and the humble that takes place in Amos chapter 9 verses 8 to 10 shows us how God is able to remain faithful to His covenant promises to Abraham and to David. Reflecting on the the storyline of the Bible for a moment, in reading the Old Testament, we must always remember that the force that kind of keeps the storyline of the Bible moving forward is God's commitment to His covenant promises. He promised Abraham that his offspring would be a blessing to the nations. And therefore, some portion of Abraham's offspring, Israel, must survive. Furthermore, God promised King David that one of his offspring would eternally reign on his throne. And therefore, some portion of David's offspring, Israel, must survive. The storyline of the Bible teaches us that God is forming a people for himself. And so he must always preserve a remnant from among his people. But the question is, after looking at these verses, this revelation of judgment, how will God deal with the rubble that his judgment leaves behind? Well, that's what the closing verses of Amos 9 deal with. So let's turn now and consider our second point, restoration. And as we do, read Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 15 with me. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, 
and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes with him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So here we learn that a remnant of God's people will be restored, repaired, and renewed. And if you've been with us for most of our studies in Amos, then you know that these five verses are radically different than the majority of the book of Amos. Amos has been preaching judgment, 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 judgment for eight and a half chapters. And, and yes, there have been little glimmers of hope along the way, but nothing like this. In fact, if, if we've been reading the book of Amos carefully, what we read in this, these verses is somewhat shocking. All throughout the book of Amos, we've been reading about the coming days, the days which would come in disaster, the days which would be marked by destruction, the days that would exhibit darkness. At least some ten times, Amos has spoken of that day in terms of doom. And so when you read in that day, in verse 11... The first readers would have thought to themselves, oh great, another day of destruction. Here we go again. Amos is going off on his tangent again. But that's not what follows, is it? What follows that phrase in that day is not, I will bring them down, but I will raise them up. I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So is this a new day from which Amos had been speaking about all along in his prophecy? Well, yes and no. The phrase in that day is actually quite flexible. It can refer to an extended period of time, including multiple days. The idea here is that, as uh, Dr. Jeffrey Newhouse has said, that the day in view here is not the day of Israel's collapse, however, but the day in which that collapse initiates and makes possible the day of restoration. See, one day gives way to another but those days aren't so neatly separable because one day is dependent upon the other. The ruin has to take place in order for the restoration to take place. Imagine listening to Amos' prophecy and hearing him pronounce judgment after judgment after judgment. One might get weary of hearing sermon after sermon after sermon on judgment. You might have gotten weary of hearing me talk about judgment after judgment after judgment in this series in Amos. And so the good news that follows that phrase in that day, they were welcome words to Amos' hearers. And I pray that they will be welcome words to you too. So what's promised here? What will take place in that day? Well, what is promised here is that Israel's exile, remember they were Amos promised they were going to be picked up, removed from their homes, thrown out of their land. What Amos is promising here is that Israel's exile will come to an end. God is merciful even in this judgment upon His people. 
He promised that they would be crushed by an invading army, uprooted from their land, and dragged to a foreign land where all sense of safety and security was gone. God promises here that He will bring that to an end. Not only that, but He promises Israel that they will return to their land, and that they will once again dwell in it in a united kingdom under a Davidic king. Some of this promise was fulfilled by the decree of Cyrus in 539 BC. The people of Israel were allowed to return to their land and rebuild their ruins. This is what Cyrus said. He said, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And so with that decree, the people of Israel were free to return to Canaan and rebuild their land. You can read about Cyrus' decree in Ezra chapter 1. And you can read about the exile's return in Ezra chapter 2. Uh, later portions of the book of Ezra recount the rebuilding of the altar and the temple. Uh, Nehemiah was, uh, obviously oversaw the rebuilding of the wall, which is recounted in the book which bears his name. God kept these promises, and yet, they seem larger, don't they? They seem larger than just that return from exile and that rebuilding program. <clears throat> Consider the words of verse 12. In verse 12 we see that through this restoration, the people of Israel will possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by the name of the Lord. And this is where the promises get rather interesting. They will possess Edom and all the nations who are called by the name of the Lord. Now, possession normally denotes military conquest. But this is a worldwide conquest. And there's no mention of a military force. And what, what nations does the Lord call by His name? All of them. These promises are just too expansive and too glorious for what took place just after the exile concluded. These promises had those events in view but something more and something greater was in view too it's like standing in a mountain range you, you walk up to the top of one mountain and you can see actually there was a larger mountain that I didn't see down from the ground just beyond it you can only see that when you come up to that point and we see from the unfolding of scriptures that there's a greater higher fulfillment of this passage than just that return from the exile these promises had those events in view, but something more and greater was in view too. Consider the wonderful promises of verses 13 to 15. Read those verses again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seeds. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Doesn't that sound like a return to the paradise that was the Garden of Eden? It, it sounds like a place where there was no sin and everything was perfect. The promised land of Canaan in the scriptures is often described in terms that sound like the Garden of Eden. But here the effects of the curse that came as a result of Adam's first transgression seem to be completely gone. There's no mention of futility in working the land. Instead, farmer after farmer is able to keep working the land. As soon as one finishes, the next one starts. And the land returns a perfect crop for each farmer. 
There are no thorns and thistles. There's no bad crop. There's no bad years. Everything that they set their hands to redounds in perfect blessing. This is not the old creation. This is not the gardens that we know in our backyards where we plant tomatoes and then weeds take them over and they die and get choked out. There's nothing like this. This is not like the old creation. This is not the creation that we have come to know and fight against. This is the renewed and restored creation. And and to top it all off, there's the everlasting promise of verse 15. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again Never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is different than Eden. This is different than the promised land of Canaan, is it? Think about it. God planted His people in Eden. He planted Adam and Eve in Eden. And yet when they sinned, God uprooted them and exiled them from the garden. And what about Israel? Didn't God plant Israel in the promised land of Canaan? And yet when they sinned against God and abandoned His covenant, what did He promise to do? We've learned through Amos that He promised to uproot the people of Israel, to exile them from their garden-like land. And He did that in 722 B.C. But that's not the promise of verse 15, is it? I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. When the Lord plants His people on this land that He's talking about, There is never any danger of being uprooted out of the land that God has given him. These promises are too lofty and too heavenly to be referring to the small plot of land in the Middle East. Moreover, the worldwide conquest and inclusion of the nations as a people called by God's name is far too expansive for earthly considerations. No, the restoration that is ultimately envisioned here has eschatological connotations, which is to say that these promises are tied to the final state of all things. Every one of these promises in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, finds its culminating fulfillment in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true Israel and the booth of David that God raised up, but only after having been struck by the hand of God's judgment. When he hung upon the cross, God's eyes were fixed upon him, not for blessing, but for curse and calamity. When he took our sins upon himself on the cross, he became worthy of judgment like a Cushite in the sight of God. He took the guilt of the people of God, the guilt of the nations upon himself. And when he died, he was cut off. He was exiled from the land of the living. In death, the disaster of God's judgment overtook him. But three days later, God raised up the booth of David. The kingdom of God would begin to rise because God's king rose. Jesus rose again from the dead. And the eternal kingdom that God promised to give David's greater son in 2 Samuel chapter 7 was awarded to Jesus Christ in his resurrection and ascension to his throne in heaven. And he called his disciples to go and make disciples Not just of Israel, but of Edom and of all the nations. Jews and Gentiles would now be called by God's name. Jesus is the seed of Abraham, whom God promised would bless the nations. And when the Christian church was getting going in the book of Acts, this became clear. Not just Jews, but Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus Christ too. 
And James cited this text, Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, for proof that this is what the prophets foretold. So keeping one finger here, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, then you should be able to find the passage on page 924 of the Bibles provided. I want us to see James recognizing that this is the fulfillment of Amos' promise. So, so here's the background of this passage we're about to read. Gentiles had been coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul and Barnabas recounted amazing things that God had been doing among them. And they stopped speaking and then this is what happens next. In Acts chapter 15, take a look at verse 13. That's where we'll begin reading. Acts 15, verse 13. We'll read through verse 18. So after Paul and Barnabas had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Does that sound familiar to you? It, it should. It's, it's Amos 9. And do you see what James is saying? He's saying that's what's happening right now, what's happening today, with people who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ who are not Jews, with Gentiles coming to the church, it's exactly what God promised would happen through the prophets. Well, turn back to Amos 9 then. Turning back to Amos 9, we can see that based on this passage, James was effectively saying, the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church is the fulfillment of God's promise through Amos and the other prophets. Jews and Gentiles now together bear the name of the triune God. Before it was only Israel who bore God's name. And through Isaiah the Lord said, It's too small a thing, O Israel, for you only to bear my name. For it was only Israel. And now through Jesus, people from every tongue and tribe and nation bear His name name. The question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is this. Are we called by the name of the Lord? Are we called by the name of the Lord? Are we part of that restored remnant that God promised? Or are we those who are destined for disaster as God revealed? Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are not called by His name, if you do not call on His name for salvation, if you're not a Christian, then I want to invite you to turn from your sins and to place your faith, your trust in Him. You see, the truth is, is that we are all like that sinful nation, Israel. We've all decided to live our own way rather than God's way. And that's what the Bible calls sin and rebellion. And we know that it exists in this world because we see it every day. We see the sinfulness and the wickedness of others on the news. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we see it in our hearts too. We see it in the lust that we have for those who are not our spouses. We see it in our greed. We see it in our hatred of others. The hatred that, okay, maybe we don't voice, but we certainly harbor in our hearts. We see it in the deceit and lies that we sometimes tell. The truth is, is that we're sinners. And the question is, are we willing to admit it? 
and to admit along with it that we're deserving of God's divine disaster? Or, or will we, through willful ignorance, say disaster will not overtake me? I'm good. Everything's fine with God. Well, clearly, as we can see here from Amos 9, God punishes sin and not one escapes who says, I don't need you, God. God not only promises to punish and not only has the power to punish, but He actually does punish. We know that because that's what He did to Jesus on the cross. He punished Jesus for the sins of all of those would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. And it had to be Jesus. Because Jesus and Jesus alone lived the life of perfect obedience to God. No one had ever fully obeyed God the Father before. Fully worshipped Him. Jesus was sinless. And He was the perfect sacrifice. The perfect one to stand in our place and bear the punishment that our sins deserve. But that's not all. Because three days after His death on the cross, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him. And by His resurrection, God the Father declared to the world that His life, that Jesus' life and death on behalf of repenting sinners satisfied the demands of divine justice. And now everyone from any tongue or tribe or nation who turns from their sins and places their faith in Jesus Christ will be made right in God's sight. And so bear His name as His child. Not only that, but those who turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ will be heirs to the inheritance promised in Amos chapter 9, verses 13 to 15. And what's promised here is nothing short of heavenly glory, entrance into the promised land of heaven, where God dwells with His people and God's people dwell with God. Those who come to Jesus Christ in faith will never lose their inheritance because they cannot be disowned by their Father. They are loved by their Father as His children. And He keeps His word and what has He promised? God has promised that they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. What happened to Adam and Eve, what happened to Israel, will never happen again to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. So friend, if you want to know more about what it means to bear the name of Jesus, to be called a Christian and to trust in Him, then please do come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and to lean on these wonderful and glorious promises given to us in God's Word. As we conclude this sermon and our study in the book of Amos, I want us to think just a little bit more about the promises that the book of Amos concludes with. You know, whenever, whenever you go on a trip, uh, perhaps like a trip you might be going on for Thanksgiving, you'll be taking later this week. Whenever you go on a trip, you prepare for it in one way or another. Uh, you might be the type A person who actually like writes out a list of things that you want to take in order to make sure that you don't forget anything. Uh, you might be the type B person who doesn't use a list but starts with a toothbrush because you, 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 know, you can forget some other things, but you really, really don't want to forget your toothbrush. Either way, you know, you're, you're preparing for your trip in some way, shape, or form. You're headed somewhere. You know that. You're conscious of it. And you're preparing for it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are headed somewhere. You're headed home. 
you're going to heaven. It's a place that is real. A, a place that will bear some resemblance to our world. But it will be infinitely better because it's the new heavens and the new earth, as the scriptures say. There, there is no more depravity, disease, decay, or death. You're going to heaven, and it's time to start packing. To prepare. Because our lives need to reflect the reality that this world is not our home. No, we're going home. We haven't made it yet. And so, as, as Martin Luther once said, we live this day, each day that God gives us on this earth, we live this day in light of that day when we make it home to heaven. And this has thousands of implications for our lives each day. We, we, we put off what we've seen in the book of Amos. We, we put off racism and eth ethnic elitism because Jesus bled and died for people from every tongue and tribe and nation. We reject greed because Jesus Christ is our treasure. <coughs> we practice justice and encourage justice because we want to reflect the perfect justice which Jesus Christ will administer and oversee in heaven, the new creation. We show mercy because we've been shown mercy. And it's because it's only by His mercy that we might be received into heaven. We're generous with others because God has been generous with us. The Christian life is fundamentally oriented toward that day when we will see the Son of God and the King of the nations face to face. That day is coming. And in His love and grace, Jesus Christ has promised that He's preparing a place for us. And so we need to prepare for that place too. We need to personally prepare and invite others to come along with us. He is preparing a place for us. And it's a place to unpack our bags and stay, not just for a while, but for forever. Praise God. Let's pray together.